I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond. In order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. I am so excited to have here with me Dr. Taniqua Miller, who is an assistant professor of the Department of Gynecology and Obstetrics at Emory School of Medicine. She received her undergraduate degree in psychology at Yale University, and after completing her medical degree at Harvard Medical School, she went on to complete her residency training in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. She's a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists and is, a, is recognized as a national certified menopause practitioner for the North American Menopause Society. In addition to her clinical work, Dr. Miller is a committed educator for medical students and resident physicians and has a new role that maybe we can talk about in a little bit. Um, she has been recognized by the Emory School of Medicine and the Association of Professors in Gynecology and Obstetrics for her teaching excellence and innovative curriculum development. She's also been recognized as a distinguished faculty by the Society of Academic Specialists in General Obstetrics and Gynecology. Her clinical interests include midlife and menopausal health. And that has a lot of obstetrics in it, and it was hard for me to say. <laughs> but Taniqua, thank you so much for joining me today. It's so great to have you here. So great to be here. Thank you. Um, so I would love to hear, I'm, I feel like you and I were talking before, menopause is not something that is talked about all that often, as tends to happen with issues relating to women's health. Um, I'd love to hear how you got involved in menopausal healthcare and, and, and how that's uh, informed some of your health equity work. That's an excellent question. Um, I wouldn't take it back to my mom when I was a teenager and my mother's own experience with menopause. Um, she was in her early 40s, um, actually started having symptoms in her late 30s. She was also a smoker, which is one of the risk factors for early menopause. And she was absolutely miserable. And of course, I was the teenager and I was kind of like making fun of her, calling her a drama queen because she literally would tear her clothes off. And she honestly, I felt like was very anxious during that time and just generally had a poor quality of life, poor sleep, all of the things that we think about with vasomotor symptoms and, and things like that. But she never, she kind of thought, well, this is just my lot, right? Like this is what I'm gonna go through. My grandmother also had early menopause and kind of, same thing. This is just my lot. This is what I'm going to go through. Your body goes through things as you get older, and it is what it is. Fast forward, I'm in my clinic very early in my clinical practice, and I meet this woman. And she had had a heart attack um, at the ripe age of like 53. So strong family history of heart disease, um, was on hormone therapy. She has this heart attack, and now she's taken off of everything. And she came into the office and was there for other things, but I was kind of like, what's up with this lady? Like, what's wrong with you? And she just started crying. Her sleep was poor. She was having all of these symptoms and everyone was focused on her heart, <laughs> rightly so, but no one was really focused on her quality of life and that taking her hormones away from her um, without giving her any other options really, really um, debilitated her. And it was something as simple as saying, well, I don't have to give you hormones. We could totally 
get your symptoms under control with this thing. And no one had ever had that conversation with her. Um, and so fast forward, you know, four weeks later after initiating therapy, and I called it the lipstick sign. She walked in, she had her lipstick, her lipstick on, and she was like a new person. And then in that conversation, again, she was just really emotional. She was like, no one told me that I had options. Like I was on hormones, I was taken off, and I was told deal with it because the heart was better. And I wanted to just say, no, you are a whole person, right? Like, yes, your heart is important, but it, but you're a whole person. And it made me think of my mom's experience of not having anybody to talk to, um, and just thinking that she had to kind of deal with it. And so it totally was this like pivotal moment in my, in my, in my career, because I, menopause was never on radar. <laughs> like in residency, you really don't get a lot of menopausal training. And so to think that I pivoted when I thought I was going to be highly surgical or, or something like that to doing a lot of office-based um, consultations was really something that I was scary. And then also to everybody was looking at me like, how old are you? And you taking care of menopausal people? And so for that reason too, I was a little apprehensive of really feeling like I can like stake my claim in the field, but I've had an excellent experience um, building my practice around this. Oh, good, good. Um, we talked about, you mentioned that you were, um, I think you were involved in planning, if not totally planning a conference recently. No, I was, uh, I attended the conference you attended all virtual this year. Okay. I thought for some reason you said you could plan the whole thing. And I was like, oh God, that's so much. Um, <laughs> attending it is enough. <clears throat> so um, you attended an, uh, a conference about menopause, <clears throat> excuse me. And you tell me about what your experience was as a black woman. Yeah. So the North American Menopause Society, that's how I received my certification. I remember going for the very first conference um, and it was in Las Vegas and it was awesome. And all of the information that I was learning just really, really hit home. And so when I looked around the room, what I love about the organization is that you have so many different disciplines. So it's not just Plans. You have family practice, you have endocrinology, you have nurse practitioners, social workers, you have all acupuncturists, you have all of these different people converging together to take care of women. What was lacking or what I realized was lacking was representation, diverse representation specifically for the leadership. So I don't see someone like me, you know, being part of the leadership of, of uh, NAM. So I don't see young black women in that, in that role. And what I found from the conferences, um, one thing that we do in our department is that in our goal for bringing light to health inequity, we make sure that everyone that presents presents on something about health inequity and explain it. Well, that wasn't something that was present um, specifically in our conference. So lecture after lecture after lecture, I noticed that the majority of people um, imparting amazing information were usually older and white. And I feel like there are so many of our voices that are not necessarily centered in that conversation of menopause on a broader um, scale in the society. So I would love to um, see that a little bit more because I do think that our challenges are unique um, and there should be people like myself given that information because I think that that's how you get a little bit more buy-in for these communities that are already pretty marginalized when it comes to access. Um, that's so important. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the, the, some of the ways that Black women might experience menopause differently in terms of all of the, the whole, all the holistic stuff, the, the symptoms, the access, all of that. 
Yeah. So we know that um, menopause is the cessation of menstrual cycles. Median age is about 51. And the big symptom that we tend to see with the menstrual changes, um, as well as um, hot flushes and vasomotor changes. And what we find with especially um, Black women, they tend to have their symptoms earlier in onset, and they tend to last longer. And the severity of the symptoms tend to also be higher. Um, the other thing that we notice too with um, abnormal uterine bleeding and the need for potentially treatment of fibroids, we know that the fibroid size tends to be larger in Black women. And so when you're thinking about um, menstrual changes around the time of menopause, that is another issue that comes up for, um, for Black women. But what I find, um, and this is supported by the literature, that despite having this greater symptomatology, Black women are less likely to be offered um, uh, the gold standard of care at this time, which is hormone therapy. And a part of that is access. Um, but then I also think part of it is a true ignorance in how to administer hormone therapy and in um, scenarios where it's safe. Because even when you control for um, all of the kind of like medical pre-existing conditions and things like that, there's still that disparity. So there's something else at play um, that's preventing these women from having hormone therapy, which could be life-saving. Um, so we were talking a little bit about earlier that if you're an early adopter of hormone therapy in the right patient, there are actually protections from your cardiovascular health um, in terms of developing heart disease later on in life, as well as your bone health. And so we're miss there's a cohort of women um, that are not being served by that. And, and, it's, and it's pretty disappointing. So maybe even more of an advocate, I, I have a very system way that I approach every single patient. And I think by providing those systems, it really uh, dispels any sort of bias that you can have. And I encourage my, my colleagues to adopt it as well. And if they don't know, I say, just send them to me. <laughs> so how do you, that's so great. So you kind of make sure you're going through a certain checklist or a certain way of approaching it. So you're, every patient's getting the same treatment. How do you, recommend like other docs, even not in menopause, uh, adopt that? Or do you have any advice in terms of providing Yeah, I really pride myself on having patient-centered visits. And I know that sounds pretty cliche, like because everything is like patient-centered, should be patient-centered, but I had wonderful teachers who trained me to ask patients, for today's visit, what is your goal? I may have an agenda, you might be completely miserable with your hot flushes, but I always start out, what is your goal? And I take what the patient offers and then I have my checklist based on that. So if I have a patient, for example, that says, my goal is relief of my hot flushes and having a better, a more comfortable uh, sex life because I have dryness, I'm focused on that. In my head, I already have what I'm going to talk about. And so, and I keep it very focused on what her goals are. And then at the next visit, we do the same thing. And so keeping it very patient goals driven, I think keeps me accountable to making sure that when she leaves that office, that I am giving her what she came for. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's you're, like you're saying, I mean, it should be obvious, but I feel like I remember I used to go into my primary care visits like, we've got to talk about prevention, we have to talk about this and healthcare maintenance and da 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 da, da. And I have to get through all the things that I need to cover to care for this patient, but 
for anyone listening on the podcast, I'm air quoting for caring for this patient because I'm caring for me, kind of, you know, I'm getting my stuff done, but not listening to the patient. Right. That's great. And, and I find when you lead with that, patient satisfaction is they're really more willing to partner with you because that's any sort of like patient doctor relationship is a partnership. And so they're really willing to partner with you to kind of come up with a, a very custom tailored uh, prescription, if you will, for their care. And that has been, um, I've been able to explore that more because of my midlife health interests. Um, I love that. I mean, it's so simple. What is your role? But I want to start that with every conversation I have <laughs> in the whole world, not just not right. to care. Um, so I, I feel like talking in a more holistic way about patient care, um, I think patients get dehumanized enough in our healthcare system, but then adding other intersectional identities, it, it becomes much too easy to forget that that they're human beings. Like you're saying they're, they're, they have maybe a heart issue, but there's like their whole human beings coming. Um, can you talk about like how you've seen that play out or how maybe you've experienced that, that depersonalization, particularly amongst communities of color or black communities in healthcare? Yeah, I think, I think we're moving to a model of kind of protocols um, responses to how we care patients. And there's a place for that. I think there's a place for checklists and, and, and models, but I'll give you an example. Um, there is something to be said for looking at your patient. <laughs> so I can't tell you how many times, you know, I have to teach my learners that they're like, oh, this number is this and this number is that and this. Per and I'm like, but did you see the patient? The patient's in the room reading a magazine, right? Like, and so it, it's big a lab value or some imaging on a screen, you have to look at the patient. Um, when I trained in medical school, I had a wonderful mentor and he would always challenge us, for example, to do two things. One, I had to describe the patient's hands and he had a reason for that. And two, I had to, in my old history and physical, have the next of kin's phone number. And so, Yes, of course, it's in the chart, but that made me do two things. One, by looking at their hands, that means I had to be close to them, right? To take their hand and say, can I see your hands? And there was an intimacy that that provides between you as a medical student and you don't feel you're on the lower rung, but then also as a patient, like, oh, this person's kind of holding my hand in a very vulnerable place like a hospital. And then the second thing, by getting that next of kin's number, I had to ask them about their family. Yeah. And so you have to see them as a person, as part of like a larger um, a community by saying, tell me, like, if anything happened, who should I call? Oh, we'll call my daughter. Oh, how old is your daughter? And then you start having that conversation. And unfortunately, we've moved away from that. A lot of our bedside work is now replaced with a computer. Um, and so we've moved away from that. And part of it is time. We need to get through seeing patients. We need to get through the work of the day. Um, but in my new role of, as, a, as an advisor for medical students, I get to bring that back a little bit, right? Before they lose it, I get to say, hey, like this is a person. Um, and especially where we practice, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. So, and so where we are in Atlanta, um, we have a charity hospital where a lot of our learners will rotate 
and that, and for the women's health department, over 90% of those patients identify as black. And so not only are we dealing with race, but we're also dealing with poverty. We're dealing with poor access, transportation issue, nutrition. We're dealing with all of these things. And so it's very easy to fall into um, a pattern where you're just looking at numbers and not really treating the whole person. But in these communities, even more so, we need to be looking at everything because when they leave us, what type of situations are they going back to? And, and this is our opportunity to see the, hu the humanity in that person and to treat them well and really set them up for success once they leave us. Um, that's, I love that. I, um, I feel like I had a, a, one of my mentors wanted us to do something similar, but it was a little weird. Like he wanted us to get their occupation, which I liked, but then he, there I don't even know if I should say this. There was a, a certain part of the physical exam he wanted us to have that would potentially screen for um, colon cancer because he had colon cancer, I think, and he wanted to make sure every patient had that. And that was like supposed to be part of our standard exam on every patient was that. And like, so it was like partially like, you know, connecting well to a patient. And part of it was just, I think, a little bit. Um, Maybe overzealous. <laughs> overzealous. I feel creepy just talking about it. So, um, but and I there's another that. good practice that um, I haven't been like initially. I was very, very consistent with it. It's in the operating room. GYN is a surgical um, a specialty, and so in the operating room, it could be very dehumanizing, right? Um, because you have drapes, you have everything covering this patient, and you just see them as the surgery but there was this lovely idea of doing a social timeout. So before any sort of surgical procedure, we go through what's the procedure, we talk about any sort of the risk and all of the concerns that we have. And then we take a pause and say, actually, this patient, she's a nurse here, she works in the ICU, um, and this was these were her symptoms, and now she's here, and we're gonna take great care of her. And just kind of like recognizing that, oh, oh wait, that's a person that's like, under the drape. I really think, at least for my learners, they really like that because they can bring the humanity back. And even during the search, I'm like, okay, she's going to get to wear white pants for Labor Day, you know, and kind of like <laughs> really bring it back to what her life is going to look like once these fibroids are gone and we really help her bleeding. Little things oh, like that can that. really bring the humanity in the picture. That's so good. That's so good on so many different levels. Um, I, so, can, what I'd like to talk a little bit about your experience. I mean, you you've trained at some massively impressive <laughs> institutions. Um, what was your experience like in those institutions as a black woman um, in your in your medical training um, and even your undergraduate as well? Yeah, you know, undergraduate. Um, my under my my very early undergraduate years were tough. So take you. I'll take you back. I'm originally from the Bronx, I'm from New York, and I was first generation everything, right? So there, so then we had that going on. Um, so my mom is an immigrant from Trinidad, so I was like first generation American, and then first generation to go to college. And so then all of a sudden you go into the Ivies, and there are lots of un, like unspoken protocols and 
traditions and things like that, that as somebody who, um, one, is a Black woman, um, and two, essentially kind of first generation, everything, not wealthy, all of the things that I felt like I had to navigate and then miss because I just didn't know. Something like office hours. I didn't know you were supposed to go to office hours. Like things like that, that my um, colleagues who um, had exposure to that environment just knew to do. Um, and so what saved me was like the biggest affinity group that you could ever think. It was the Afro-American Cultural Center at Yale. We call it the house affectionately. And that was like home base. Um, it, I later served as one of like the um, ethnic counselors. That's what we were called at the time, my last year. And that was really like home base. Like if you were just feeling terrible, um, you just went to the house. There was always someone there. And so that was a community that was very supportive along the way. Um, because I didn't know how to approach when I was struggling. I didn't know who to turn to or approach. And they say, oh, please come to us. I never felt like I fit into what the Ivy League was. Mm -hmm. um, and so I also um, pledged a sorority. And so my sorority sisters were amazing. And it's historically, the first historically black sorority, um, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. And so that also brought me into the community. And so I was able not only to just explore Yale, but also explore New Haven, Connecticut, and see the richness of the city surrounding the Ivy Tower. And so that was inc an incredible experience. And those are my lifelong friends, my, my, my true blues um, that have supported me. And then I took a couple of years off and uh, worked and then realized very quickly I wanted to go to medical school. And I was delightfully um, surprised at the, uh, the, the support at Harvard Medical School. Um, the Office of Multicultural Affairs really approached students of color with such intention and mentorship that I felt like I was like the best thing since sliced bread when I got it. I felt amazing. I had incredible mentors for all different parts of my life. Um, here it was this little girl from the Bronx. I spoke at graduation, you know, wow. which I met a lot of fanfare. My family was crazy, you know, and it was just kind of like, wow, I made it. Like, this is amazing. I had such great support. And it really was such an intentional program to support students like me who were first generation or, um, you know, underrepresented in medicine to feel like they also had a community. So I had an OBGYN mentor. I had you know, a mentor who was internal medicine, and he was the one that told me, look at the hands and, you know, take down the numbers. I had my clerkship person who mentored me on OBGYN. So there was just so many hands that were kind of holding me up and making sure that I was in the right direction. Um, and then I journeyed south, um, and I trained at University of Virginia, and my husband was there at the time. And it was a different experience. You know, my training and my, um, and the relationships with my co-residents, like bar none, the strongest, the strongest um, that I can say. But I was really lost. Um, and when I when I considered like mentorship, the first week that I was there, there were two interns, myself and someone else. And she was another black girl. And the nurse said, kept calling us the different names. We looked nothing alike, of course. And she flat out told me, you're both new. You're both black. It's going to take me a minute to kind of sorted out. And I was like, where am I right now? Right? Because that's never been any experience that I've had anywhere that I've been. Yeah. And there were instances that along the way that continued to happen. And 
I didn't have the emotional intelligence to really understand what was happening and how that was affecting my performance as a resident. And so I left residency feeling really bitter and I left residency feeling like I wasn't a good doctor or I wasn't a good OBGYN. And now I know um, kind of through my own um, healing from that experience were about the cognitions that when there are little comments made along the way that's kind of chip at your worth or chip at who you think you are, those cognitions add up and you really start doubting yourself. So if I had a patient make a comment and I would say, was that comment directed towards me? Was, you know, and these were the conversations that I would constantly have. Or if I was in the operating room with an attending that was particularly gruff, I couldn't fight. I couldn't flight. So I just froze. And then afterwards felt horrible about it, but know that that is what was happening. And so now I feel like I've made it my mission with my advising work to be that advisor, to replicate that support that I had when I was in medical school so that this generation of students really can move into their residency and their training and being attendings and, you know, real full-fledged doctors and maintain that level of confidence and help them develop that emotional intelligence so that when these things do happen, they can identify it pretty quickly and not internalize it and therefore help, I mean, um, hurt their performance. That's so powerful on so many levels. Um, and I like want to go back through and have you be my, be my mentor. <laughs> it's so, I mean, you're so intentional about it and you're so like aware of what's needed. Um, especially I feel like you yeah. had what was needed and then you didn't. So you can like model the good and, and not do the bad. And honestly, and this has been a lot of work since it's like, what, what's wrong with me? Like, I don't, I'm not a bitter person. Like, why do I feel this way? And I realized a lot of it is just not having that kind of the, the verbiage to really say, this is how I was feeling or not feeling in power to or having that like psychological safety i love that term like having the psychological safety to feel supported um and so part of my role as small group advisor at the school of medicine which is a very new role i just attended my first what we call processing group and all it is it's a group of our third years they're in the middle of their rotations and talking about like loss and stakes and death and listening to this group of students, I literally, and then we ended with a meditation. You were like that. Love it. Um, we ended with a meditation and literally I was in tears by the end. I was like, imagine if my generation had this, right? We wouldn't be bitter and burnt out and things like that. These students were so intentional and, and just in tune with what they were feeling internally about their experiences. And then our meditation was, um, visualizing someone or something that has held us and showing gratitude by thanking them. Oh my gosh, I almost fell on the floor. Oh, <laughs> I love that. When I was at Emory as a medical student, I was just like, I want to go drink. You know, like that was, that was my processing group was like going to the bar and having too much beer. That's what you do. Like you yeah. have to figure out a way to cope. And you don't really have that, that you don't have the words to really like express why, why do I feel this way? You just know you feel icky, right? And what's fun going to the bar and having a drink now. Um, and so, yeah, this, this, this group, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. That's amazing. What you're saying, it really, I do a lot of like 
trauma-informed work and the fact that you said like I can't I mean it was so telling to me I can't fight I can't flight so I froze and from from what I understand about the trauma response and I might you might be knowing all of this stuff and I'm not really trying to teach you but I'm maybe just talking out loud processing what you said but like when you cannot finish saving yourself in a trauma like if you can't fight back if you can't run away if you aren't able to get out of the burning car then that's when it can lead to more more of an imprint of that event um and it can lead to more traumatic post-traumatic stress um and so i'm just thinking about like the power differential in medical school bad enough med student resident fellow attending and anyone watching like med students all the way down at the bottom and my other hand for attending is like way up high but then you add in the dynamics of race and gender and you're even even less empowered or more disempowered in that dynamic to speak up for yourself and when you when you do speak up you feel that there's like a spotlight on you. Mm-hmm. And so in my experience, you know, I was the only black resident in my program after my second year. So my first year I had a black, uh, a black woman that was my chief and we were very close. And then thereafter it was just me. And then also we had very few black faculty on, on, in, in our department. And so I always worry what I sounded like. I always worried how I like showed, like rolled my eyes. I always, and I wasn't a crier, right? Like, so I wasn't someone who cried. So when I was angry, I would kind of get my like resting bitch face going, you know? And that was just the way that I coped. Like I wasn't a crier. That was just, and all of my other residents, they would cry. And so if I wasn't responding like that, it was kind of like, oh, she has an attitude. And I remember one time, one of my, my favorite chiefs, I felt horribly about this, but one of my favorite chiefs, something happened with the schedule and I was just having a bad day. And I remember just being like, oh. and then she was like, you have the biggest attitude right now. And then I remember just like sobbing. And it was like, oh, I guess that that's what was under that. But I remember feeling like, oh my gosh, they're going to think that I'm like the angry black girl in the program. And I felt like I was carrying so much weight. Um, kind of like I was, I was paving the way for other black residents to come in. And it was a lot of pressure. Like I was just trying to be a resident and learn how to be a good doctor. But I was always aware that I was the only and I felt treated differently. And whether or not I really was treated differently, I, I believe I was. Even my co-residents were like, nah, they treated you a little differently. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I think part of it was obviously bias. And I also think it was like not feeling like I was seen as like just me, but I had this like persona, right? Like she's like the angry black girl. Um, and it was really, really hard. Um, and I can look at it now and kind of talk about it and feel free about it and feel that I'm freeing myself from that experience a little bit. Because like I said, my relationship with my co-residents was, I mean, they were like family, you know, and um, my training, I felt like I had excellent superior training, um, but felt really lost. Um, And in that time, I wish I had had consistent mentorship to tell me that I wasn't crazy that I was good, you know, that I was good and there was nothing wrong with me um, because it really shaped how I left my residency experience. And I don't think anybody leaves residency feeling amazing, (laughs) Um, doubtful, right? But I remember leaving being like, 
like, I'm so happy that's over, you know? Yeah. I was just funny. You mentioned that I was on a podcast earlier this week and like about wellness and she was asking me about my residency and I was like, Ooh, all these icky feelings. <laughs> and I didn't even realize that I still, I, I had, um, an experience that left also left me feeling at the end of my residency, like, get me out of here. I'm not valued. I'm, I'm not enough, you know, and it, it, it wasn't race related. It was so, you know, like I didn't have to compound it with that, but for anyone listening who doesn't understand residency, like it's hard no matter what, you know, it's physically grueling, emotionally grueling, imposter syndrome, all that stuff. And then adding on any other layers of, and the energy you had to expend thinking about rolling your eyes or not rolling your eyes. And that's, yeah, it was, it was, or when someone would say something to you and you just had to kind of like, right. And I remember at the very end, I had um, my daughter at my last residency and I remember I was, I was committed to being excellent chief and an excellent mom and I would wake up, like my day was waking up at five, breastfeeding, pumping, bringing my daughter downstairs, being at the hospital at six, bringing donuts for my team or muffins for my team to keep everybody in good spirits and just bumping heads with like my fellow on the team. And I finally said, I have to do something. And I remember going to one of the faculty members and in the middle of the, the girl who doesn't cry, right? I just like, I feel like four years of everything just kind of poured out of me. And I remember her response um, wasn't anything that was really helpful for me. And I remember feeling like, okay, I just got to get through, you know, I just got to make it through. I mean, and I felt like nobody was necessarily making excuses from why I had, you know, rolled eyes or whatever. Nobody was saying that, oh, well, that's just Taniqua. But this person who I felt like was really perpetrating a lot of nonsense, they were like, well, you know, that's just kind of how she is. And I was just like, nobody's gone to bat for me. So I'm just going to make it through. I'm just going to stay out of here, you know? Um, I'm sorry. Thank you for sharing your experiences. And I'm oh, yeah. to go through that. And obviously, like, you're not alone in having that experience, which is, you know, it's, this is the rule rather than the exception, um, for sure. Um, do you see that changing? Like, do you feel like, I guess with people like you in the mentorship roles um, and in the leadership roles, you're able to make changes. Um, how are some ways that you're implementing that? You know, um, formal mentorship and even not so formal mentorship. So I know when I have, you know, black women come through my program, um, kind of tapping them on the shoulder, like, hey, I'm here. Here's my cell phone. Let's meet occasionally, even if it's only quarterly. Let's check in. Let's just make sure if there's something that they do well, I make sure I send them a text message like, hey, like I'm always here. And it's just those small things knowing that. And I have had residents come to me really angry about something. And we talk through it, right? Now I'm older. I have a little bit more emotional intelligence. And I really kind of like listen and say, okay, what are we going to do in this situation? Like, I know that that was really hard, but we got to do this. So let's come up with a plan together. And I think it also empowers the resident to say, okay, I'm not just a bystander here. Like, let me actively kind of rectify whatever conflict that they're having. Um, same thing for students modeling just good behavior. Um, I'm not always perfect. I'm tired. In fact, COVID has me really feeling burnt out, right? Like kind of working and things like that. 
but always trying to then like kind of set it aside and model that good behavior, um, especially for patients. And so that has been one of the things that is a practice, right? Um, is a practice, but you never feel badly about treating people well. Um, you always feel good about that. And, and when you can model that, I think that that is amazing. But, and then also accepting mentorship and just telling people you're my mentor. And so I know that sounds crazy, but I realized in that period how I took mentorship, I wouldn't say for granted when I was in medical school, but it was such a given and it was such a warm and supportive environment that I was just like, and we were all down. Like I remember getting um, questioned, I was post-call as a third year medical student and I was getting question, question, question about like the kidney. Who knows the kidney? It's hard. It's, I remember just like answering the question, answering the questions, answering the questions and not faltering. I felt like it was like answer until you get it wrong type of thing. And I remember being exhausted and I was in a room with a man who had a wing of the hospital named after him, an older white man. And my colleague who was right after me in the alphabet, it was also a white man and it was just me. And I remember feeling not that I was an imposter because I had people who told me I was awesome and I was just answering the questions, answering the questions. And I will never forget, I then went home and passed out and my co-medical student, older, I mean, a white guy in my class, back of me in the, um, in the, in the alphabet, he sent me an email that said, chin up fool. <laughs> and it was like, you, the way you handled that was such badass, right? Like, and so, I was in an environment where there wasn't a competition, where we were always lifting each other up. It didn't matter who you were. That was just the culture of the school. Um, and so I hope to kind of bring that culture back when I realized I didn't have that, yeah. how it impacted me as a person. Um, so that is kind of what I strive for when I'm with my students and with my residents. I love it. I love it. And I'm, I'm, I'm having a little bit of like shock that Harvard Medical School was a wildly supportive environment for <laughs> a med student woman of color. And like, I'm very happy to be shocked about that. You know, I'm happy that, that um, because I've, I've been a part of toxic systems, you know what I mean? Without realizing it. I haven't known because I've been ignorant. And so it's like, I, I wish I could go back and have my whole, I don't want to have my whole medical <laughs> If I were to do it, I, I would love to have the knowledge that I have now and, and treat my, I never, never thought I was treating anyone badly, but I know for sure I did some of those, um, what did you call it, instead of a microaggression? The, um, cognitions, like these negative cognitions, yeah. like where you, you kind of have something happen and you're completely perseverating on it. And because you're doing that, you're not sitting and studying for whatever you're worried oh my gosh what did i say and you're replaying it in your head and what does this mean and it's a complete snowball effect yeah um i think there's so much room for for growth and i think that so much of it comes from people like you who've had positive experiences and can represent what that looks and feels like as you go through um so that students aren't having to look at all white students of color aren't having to look at all white instructors um, who who don't get it, even if they want to get it, they they aren't gonna. There's gonna be some level that they don't get. Um, well, thank you so much for talking with me today um, and sharing your experiences, uh, both personally and professionally. Um, I have one last question, just about menopause. Uh, when I 
when I was in med school, I, I finished in like 03 and there was some big study that came out. Like for a while, it was like all the rage, give everyone all the hormones. And then right. it, no, 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 no. All the heart attacks stop giving. Right. So what, for anyone listening, who's curious like me, what, what, what now is the current yeah. knowledge? Oh, thank you so much for asking about that. So what you're referring to is that women's health initiative study. And actually two studies came out of that initially that made a big splash, but one had a bigger splash than the other one. So, um, there were two groups, one women with a uterus, the second group, women without a uterus, so they only received estrogen. And they found in the group with the women who had a uterus that received this particular cocktail of estrogen and progesterone that they were at a higher risk of both breast cancer and cardiovascular events. Well, first of all, the mean age in that study were in their 60s, early 60s. And so we typically don't initiate hormone therapy for women in that age group. And when they looked at the cohort of women who were younger, they, they actually found um, cardiovascular benefits. So that's something to think about. So that's why I was saying that um, if you start the appropriate patient on hormone therapy closer to when they have the onset of menopausal symptoms or menopause, they actually may have a benefit. So the North American Menopause Society recommends under the age of 60 or within the first 10 years after menopause, ideally closer to when they um, have it. The other thing that was interesting that didn't get as much of a splash for the women who had just estrogen, um, we didn't really see those findings, especially for the breast cancer risk, because that was a big thing too. Um, and so my, uh, how I counsel patients is I give them the data. I say because of their younger age cohort missionary therapy, that it's likely that they have more benefit than risk. And I introduce the different types of estrogen and progesterone options that we have because at the time that's what they had it was a conjugated estrogen and um, hydroxyprogesterone was the progestin now we actually have bioidentical um fda approved estrogen preparation so you can use a patch you can use a, a small dose pill we also have bioidentical progesterone that you can take at bedtime and so we've come leaps and bounds almost 20 years later and there was a study i want to say it was in 2017 that showed now we have all of this data, all cause mortality with no different between the groups. So that was actually great news to see that we can say, actually, yes, we saw these things, but all cause mortality, there were no differences. So, so yes, if I could pickle everybody with estrogen, I would. Thank you. And I think that like, it goes, if you, if you, and, but also like underscores a problem with access though, because not everyone's going to, not every primary care doctor is going to know maybe all the specifics that you know. And not everyone's going to have access beyond a primary care doctor if they even have access to a primary care doctor. So that really just underscores everything we've been talking about. Um, but that's really helpful information to know about hormones. So thank you. Um, all right. Well, Dr. Taniqua Miller, thank you so much. How can people uh, find you if they want to? I mean, I know you have a job at an institution. <laughs> But are right. there social media places where people can learn what you're talking about or any websites or anything like that? And we'll put that sure. on. Sure. So um, I am, will be soon publishing my Instagram account called girlfriend underscore MD, um, all lowercase. And you will be able to follow me there and receive some content about some of the fun work that we're doing around menopause around even um, puberty. I really focus on transitions. Um, so puberty, menopause, and the postpartum period for women. Um, and so yeah, stay tuned.
All right. Well, thank you so much. This was wonderful. And um, I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you so much, Jill. This was wonderful. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.